there! I'm Emily Quant, queen of the five-year-olds. I've always been one at heart, and now I'm using that passion to change the world for them. Play, emotions, education, community, structure, and sustainability. Cradle to college and beyond, we'll dive into it all here. Join me on my journey to play the world back into freedom. Hi friend, today we're answering the question, what is self-directed education? This can also be the answer to what is unschooling or what are my kids going to do all day if I allow them to learn in freedom? In a nutshell, here are the pillars that hold self-directed education up. When these exist in a child's life, it truly shapes their days in an altogether different way. Children must be allowed to have these things. Self-responsibility, unlimited time to play and explore their own interests, unlimited access to the tools of their culture, free age mixing, participation in a supportive community, and a variety of adults committed to their rights, the rights of youth. This is a big conversation, so today we'll only be skimming the surface, but we'll cover these conditions which optimize self-directed education and some very basic examples of what a child's days end up looking like when they're immersed in these conditions. So let's start the discussion around self-responsibility. This term is specifically regarding a child's education. They must be allowed and it must be assumed that they can and are able to take responsibility for their educations themselves. This means that they are capable and equipped to manage their day-to-day -day learning without any interference from anyone else. This means that they are aware of what they need and that they can look around them and see where they need to acquire competence and mastery of necessary skills for life. This means that a child, without any intervention from any other adult or child, can identify as they walk through life what is required of them in order for them to create an independent, successful life through adulthood. So, wow, right? As we look down at our toddlers, I know that's a lot to take in. I know that we see our little ones and think, there's no way this tiny being is able to identify all the skills they're going to need to know in order to move into successful adulthood. But listen, friends, I am here to say this child knows. Children come into the world with an eight senses. They are built as social creatures and as part of their social interactions, they are actually able to discern what those around them are encountering and pinpoint the skills needed to attain similar experiences. Anything that is vital to any culture will be observed by any child who's socially responsive and they will naturally seek out mastery of it. Now, just a note for when this does not apply, there is a subset to whom we actually can't apply these same expectations. And these are children who, due to physical limitations, are not socially responsive. It would be harmful for us to apply this understanding to them, for they do need further assistance. But for all of the children who don't have that physical limitation, this fact proves to be true. T-R-U-E, true. They will seek out what they need to master the skills required to live independent lives. So to help understand this innate sense, let's take a look at something we're all familiar with. 
Let's use a super easy one of a toddler learning and mastering the basic life skill of walking. Okay, so we've all seen this, right? We've all watched magical allure as our little ones begin to pull themselves up on things and work to increase their leg strength while they bounce unendingly in spite of our arms giving out while holding the weight of their bodies for them. They've all started wailing when something was out of reach until help came to their aid and moved the toy closer to them. They've all launched out away from the coffee table into the unknown of their first steps and... They all did it. They all requested, in whatever way they were able, the help they needed to acquire what they wanted. They all practiced till they built up the skills or the muscles needed for the next step they needed to take. They all took those first nervous and halting movements toward the next level of their endeavor. And then they all buckled down and committed to mastering that next level. They were undeterred by pain, undeterred by failure. They were undeterred by circumstances. They practiced and practiced and practiced until their new skill, walking or moving to get their toys for themselves in this example, till their new skill was completely mastered. In fact, they were so committed to it that they learned it so well that it will actually never leave them without outside intervention, right? Their bodies might, uh, you know, be become broken, but that's the only way they will ever lose this skill. So now you may attribute this to just the way things are. You may not want me to use an example like this because everyone learns to walk. But what I'm positing is that Everyone learns to walk because they need to learn to walk. They need it as a tool to achieve something they want. No one has to tell them to practice walking. No one has to set an alarm and go get them from what they're doing to make sure they get the repetitions necessary to learn the concept. No one has to teach them the steps they're going to have to get through in order to become proficient walkers. They innately know how to acquire what is needed. In this case, agility, strength, and persistence in the face of many, many failures. And what I further posit is that this motivation to achieve something they want continues on throughout their entire lives. And it also applies to other important skills. While we assume that children just learn to do the quote-unquote basic things of life, what we have lost in our culture is a remembering that children also just learn all the other basic skills of their culture in exactly the same way, a hundred percent organically and a hundred percent naturally. Yeah, I said it. Learning happens naturally. So the reason we've forgotten that learning happens naturally is because as our culture shifted from one generally illiterate culture, and actually the whole planet did this shift, right? We were generally an illiterate planet. And when we shifted to a literal one, literate one, the current modern education system was put in place. So let's be clear, the modern take on education system was not engineered in order to quicken the planet's movement into literacy. I'm going to go on a little tangent here to establish this a bit more in everyone's mind. So please come along with me. It's really important that we understand this current system. So while it was originally influenced by Martin Luther in order to ensure that everyone could independently read and interpret the scriptures that he held holy, he also advocated compulsory schooling. 
This seems an odd twist on his wish for independence to me. Picking up on that, though, there was a push during the 18th century. The Kingdom of Prussia was among the first countries in the world to introduce free and generally compulsory primary education. That was where the authors of the education model we have today began to work on it. Prior to this, education had been the job of parents, private tutors, and churches. But that started to change in this region of Germany called Prussia. Government leaders decided they needed to take responsibility to educate children. This new government education provided not only the skills needed in an early industrialized world, like reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also a very strict education in the ethics they wanted to instill in order to make that industrialized world function. Those were those of duty, discipline, and obedience. So these are the exact opposite traits needed to create independent leaders, right? And that is how they designed it. What they were looking for was a way to reduce the human capacity to break free from bad conditions. So let's remember, the origins of the industrialized world were pretty rough. To survive through a lifetime of the conditions presented in early industrialization, say, in the depths of a coal mine, or the backbreaking labor of doing no other task than poking holes in the ground to plant seeds from sun up to sun down, or even the inhumane treatment borne while working in textile factories. So to survive lives of this incredibly low quality, the governments and the wealthy men who were lobbying those governments needed the type of human who had lost the belief that any action they could take would change their circumstances. They needed humans who would comply at any cost. They needed humans who had lost their will. If we look back at the writings of these authors of the current education model, we read their discussion of all these predicaments and their ponderings on how to remove the obstacle of human will. And what we see is that their solution for removing human will was the current compulsory education model. They came to the conclusion that if they could take a child and before it reached the age of seven, break and break and break and break their wills, if they allowed no room for them to exercise any personal power, if they removed any hope that they had any control over their daily actions, the quality of their lives, or the choices of the tasks that they engaged in, then that child would actually give up their right to exercise their own will to change their situations. If they could control everything about a child's life during those formative years, never letting them practice their freedom of choice or see the impact their wills could make upon the world around them, then those children would never even think of attempting to break free either in childhood or in their following adult years. No matter what was going on around them, how many children, women, or men died around them in coal mines, no matter how early their deaths would come, no matter the atrocities they could easily break free of, if they had been required to yield their own pursuits early on in childhood, only then would they submit to a life filled with whatever brutality was needed in order for these men's greater plans of industrialization to be worked out. 
it was not, as many attribute it to, the movement toward planetary literacy which men debated behind closed doors. It was indeed how to break the human spirit in order to compel them to live in human lives. And while the net result was indeed bringing the planet into literacy, it's a sad truth that it also accomplished its intended goal to break the will of the human spirit, to compel all who entered its doors into forced labor for another man's gain. And as sad as this is, one of the saddest things I feel in this is not only that it took place, but that we as a planet are still 200 plus years later under its spell. Okay, so that was definitely a tangent into the depths of the origin of this system. But thanks for sticking with me. You see, by exploring the origins, the intent of the current model, it's much easier to see the why of our doubt in the idea that children learn naturally. You see, if any of us had our own education within the current model, what has happened is that we have become the expected product of it. The natural bent we had to learn was forcefully and intentionally curated out of our existence. We were purposefully stripped of our drive and ability to do and engage in this naturally occurring phenomenon. This was 100% the intent of the creators of it. They wanted us to believe that left to our own devices, we would become derelict. They invested all the years of our childhood into making sure we lost the ability to trust ourselves. And that is now what we do with our own children. We inflict upon them the same belief that was inflicted upon us. We believe that when given a completely different set of tools and parameters, those of being educated in freedom and being able to pursue their own interests and talents, that they will follow the same path we took when we did not have access to those parameters. It's like into expecting a fish to fail to thrive when he's raised in a pond because his parents were raised in a tank. They will only die waiting for someone to shake food into their water because when they were young and would have been looking around at the other fish finding food sources naturally, they instead were spoon-fed. However, when a small fry is put back into its natural environment and raised with those around it who pursue its natural and instinctual habits, it doesn't fail. It recognizes that those are healthy habits and it picks them right up. This is the same thing children do when they are put back into their natural environment. They naturally seek out and practice the skills needed to engage with their habitat, just as they do before they are, in essence, taken from their natural habitats when they enter formal education. When they're allowed to take responsibility for their own success, they indeed do it. And let me tell you, the magic that we felt when they toddled through those first steps is indeed exactly what continues to happen. They assume that they are automatically responsible for their own daily practices. They assume that, of course, they would be the ones who get to decide how they spend their days. They step up to their lives and they make their own way. They do not need someone to compile or manage their days. They take 100% responsibility for it and they look around them and seek out what they will need to succeed. And so we can make the assumption needed for self-directed education. Children must be allowed self-responsibility for their own educations. 
This is 100% natural and it 100% works. So if we yield to this natural fact or allow our children to assume responsibility for their own educations, how do we make sure that they have what they need in order to be sure that they do succeed? So the following five pillars of self-directed education touch on how we as adults supporting them can turn that Petri dish of a child's life into the most pure and beneficial mixture of conditions for them to thrive. So let's move on to the second pillar. It is providing them with unlimited time to play and explore their own interests. What you say, how will they learn anything if they're allowed to unlimited time to play and explore their own interests. Well, how do they learn to walk? How does a fish learn to catch its food? I'll tell you, they just learn. They are creatures of observation. They are always watching. They're always listening. They always have their little eyes and ears open for any information that they may need. And they apply that information. How often have we cried out a four-letter word when we accidentally hammered our fingers or something like that? Only to find our young children trying out that same word the next day when they pretend their truck has crashed into something. Or infinitely worse, when the neighbor tells a story about a sad situation that afternoon, our little one hollers out, well, sh oh gosh, we all have experienced this, right? So sometimes it's used inappropriately and the situation they've applied to it is in the wrong context. But what they're doing here is practicing. They have seen something occur which they hadn't seen frequently before and they're trying it out. When will it be used successfully in their surroundings? They're learning the context in which to use it. Often we scold them and tell them, never use that word again. And this is where we see their dedication to practice come in. You see, the use of a new tool only once never yields mastery. And they know that. And so it comes up again and again and again and again. We are just the epitome of embarrassed Far beyond when our fingers have healed from the soreness of the hammer, we're still trying to get our youth to knock off the use of this new word that they learned. They know how to observe their domain and how to practice what they observe until mastery is achieved. But how does our dedication to practice and mastery guarantee that they'll use this unlimited time to play and explore their own interests? for the tasks they need in order to live successful lives? How will they acquire the three R's? How will they master challenging tasks that take children in school years to struggle through? So here's how. When a child is not restricted in the quantity of time they are allowed to enjoy any task around them as they play, and they are allowed to choose that play based on whatever they are interested in, they dive deeply into their time spent in interesting play. They're not being drawn away from their playtimes because they have the time. And so they play in a way that's different from children who are given other tasks for the majority of their lives. They really engage with their choices. They choose something and spend hours, days, weeks, months, years on that activity. And what they're developing in that insane amount of time is actually the art of learning. You see, we've come to believe through the manipulated education model that learning is simply 
being taught. However, what these freed children do is embody the entirety of the concept of learning. They actually employ not just one definition of learning, but every single angle of it. The full definition of learning is actually the acquisition of knowledge or skills through experience, study, or by being taught. Notice that experience and study are first. So we'll admit that the first two, experience and study, are vastly more effective techniques for acquiring knowledge, right? So when a child is allowed to take responsibility for their own educations, they choose the paths most successful in producing their desired or intended results experience and study. They dive into the experience and they study it. And when they study things that are their own interests, they don't have to take a course on how to have good study habits. They know how to study. So let's look at the definition of study to really see into this. The first definition of study is used as a noun. It is the devotion of time and attention to acquiring knowledge on a subject. So how many times have we observed our children dedicate massive amounts of time to a topic of their play? Almost every time, right? A child becomes engulfed in their exploration of trucks or dinosaurs or Polly Pocket. Their exploration of subjects teeters on the brink of obsession. And the reason for this is in order to better study it. They want to fully engage with the second definition of this word, study, which is a detailed investigation and analysis of a subject or situation. They absolutely go berserk on this concept. They study their areas of exploration. And then the incredible thing is that they naturally move into the next definition. They naturally create their study. Or the third definition of this word, their piece of work done for practice or as an experiment. For a young child, this piece of work can be turning the entire living room into a track for their demolition derby. It could be tearing up the garden as their dinosaurs run rampant or creating an entire town for Polly Pocket to do all her errands in using the Amazon boxes we were going to recycle and four rolls of tape. You see, truly studying something, one needs to have work in it. One needs to explore in it. And this all takes time. And with the time available and given on any topic, these children actually become the definition of study. That is a thing or person that is an embodiment or good example of something. They become a study of study. And truly, is there anything else we want for our children but for them to have the skills they need in order that they might be able to learn? Don't we desperately want to provide them with a means to learn what they need to know? Isn't all of this focused toward that? Well, it turns out providing them with unlimited time to play and explore their own interests is actually providing them with these skills. They take the time to use it. In the last two definitions of study, they, one, devote time and attention to acquiring knowledge of their topics. We've all seen it, right? They devote all of their time to whatever their topic of study is, and they look at closely in order to observe. They give serious thought or consideration to their explorations. In short, they study. And here's the thing. Once one has developed the skill of studying something, when they know how to do it, and they associate the doing of it with personal enjoyment and fulfillment, well, 
That is an activity they want to engage in on every front for the rest of their lives. Will they be destroying your garden to show the ravages of their dinosaurs at age 40? Oh, indeed not. Of course not. Their studies will mature as they mature. As they ravage the garden at age four, they reach up and snatched a ripe tomato from their dino's mouth as he gobbled it up. And they discovered the divine taste of a warm tomato fresh off the vine. And later, as they contemplated how archaeologists must feel, again, digging in the warm soil of your garden, the smell of this year's tomatoes wafted through the air. They reached up from their dig and plucked a delicious snack and when dad goes out to plant in the spring and they see the seed packet they jump in to help i love those things now they're digging for other reasons and they love it they come out and check their seeds every day they invest the same study skills they developed on their dinosaurs into this new field they suddenly want to plant more and you find them sitting for hours with grandma talking about how to can the bounty when it arrives when the first tomato bug is found munching away on their precious leaves, they run impassionately and cry out that you must do something. When you say you don't know what to do, they require a trip to the local nursery so you can ask the attendant how to save their dear little tomato plants. They load up your basket with the treatment and carefully apply it when you get home. And when they want to do the task now, but you state that you have other activities to attend to, they discover they do not know how to read the instructions to put this treatment on. This leads them to their next study. That age-old question answered, how will they learn to read? Well, they learn to read because it facilitates everything else they are exploring. It quickens their ability to intensify their exploration. It makes possible their thirst for whatever it is they are passionate about. And this, my friends, is how they learn everything they need to know to succeed in their adult lives. Will they naturally seek out a calculus class? Well, they will if they're passionate about a subject that utilizes calculus. And should they be spending time on calculus if they're passionate about, say, sustainable farming? Wouldn't the time invested on mastering calculus be better spent learning about soil preservation for a farmer? But you say, even a gardener needs to know math, and a sustainable farmer probably needs to know even more of it, because he's working to make sure that everything he does holds up better than anyone else does, right? And that takes numerical calculations. Well, guess what? That youth who's passionate about sustainable farming sees that in order to calculate sustainability, he's going to have to learn to calculate. And he learns it. Those skills he acquired as a smaller youth to deeply study his craft, whatever it may be, are now directed toward his sustainability challenge. He proceeds to attempt some of the calculations himself, but discovers that he's too slow and his methods are too clunky because he has no training in them. So he seeks out a way to improve. Now, here's where the last three points needed to support self-directed education come in. Remember, those three points are free age mixing, participation in a supportive community, and a variety of adults committed to the rights of youth. So in his search now to deepen his knowledge of his passion, sustainable farming, our young man utilizes what he has access to. First, he checks online. 
But with math, one needs to know the correct wording for the questions that are asked. So he comes up fairly empty. And now we see free age mixing come into play because when his personal searches come up dry, then he asks his peers, do they have a good way to do this problem? Have they run into this trouble before? A few of them have. And more often than not, they actually explain it to him. Now is a good time to note that while I've chosen a very advanced example in order to walk it out all the way to the end, in many, many, many cases, this peer sourcing is where the search ends because the youth is participating in a supportive community where free age mixing is supported. He's able to source a variety of ages until he gets the answer he needs. Now, in the case where they already know how to solve for what he's looking for, we really see the benefits of free age mixing here. What happens in the explanation when it comes from someone who has more experience and knowledge than him, but is closer to his own age, is that the solution is presented in a much more palatable format for his young brain to understand. You see, a 10-year-old telling a 5-year-old how to more effectively sweep the cookie out of their dollhouse is simply infinitely more effective. And here's why. They don't waste time trying to explain the virtues of living a tidy life. They don't get waylaid by the examples of what happens when cookie crumbs are left to grind into the floor. They simply answer whatever question has been presented to them by the younger child. How do I get crumbs off the floor into the dustpan? They just let the youth know that they need a partner to hold the pan. That's it. And the five-year-old asks them to hold it, practicing, and off they go. It is the perfect scaffold from one skill to another. It takes way less time for everyone involved, and it yields the most practice for the amount of time invested. It also deepens trust and relationship between both youths. The younger one feels trust and support from those around her, and the older one feels pride at transmitting her skills and knowledge. She has also practiced empathy and compassion, in addition to adding a new level of mastery to her own skill set in the explaining and demonstrating of what she's already learned. It is a huge win-win for everyone involved. But let's go back to our original example. For here, when our sustainable farmer sourced his peers, they were actually unable to adequately transfer the knowledge he needed for him to move forward. Unfortunately for his untrained mind, their solutions seem too complicated. They can't explain it to him because he's missing the math building blocks that they had already learned. So we come to the final pillar required for support of self-directed education. This is access to a variety of adults who are committed to the rights of youths. So as his final stretch, he reaches out to a trusted adult. He airs his frustration on how long math takes and how he can't seem to uncover a way to do it more quickly. And voila, here it is. They know how to get a hold of the math lessons he needs. These Adults who are committed to the rights of youth are committed to nurturing him as a human. They are engaged in making sure he has the resources necessary to follow his desires in whatever direction they're pulling him. And so this caring adult goes on a journey with him to acquire the knowledge and skills he needs to do his sustainable farming calculations. First, 
They explained to him about the missing building blocks and questioned whether his desire includes filling those blank spots. If the youth is ready for this, the adult walks them through the process to find the best path in which to do it. Should they enroll in a math class? Should they talk to a tutor? Should they do an online course? All the options are sourced and the values of one over the other are discussed. The youth chooses a path that fits for them and he's off to the races because he has done all the preliminary work to ensure that this is the path he wants in the discussions with the adult. When he attends the course of his choice, he gobbles it up. He learns 10 times as quickly as a youth who does not need the information for a project that he's on. He enjoys adding the skills to his toolbox. He does all the homework. He never needs to be told to stop what he's doing in order to make it happen. This is his project. He's taking this math course and he does everything necessary to succeed in it. And there you have it. All six pillars upon which to stand, the principles really needed to optimize self-directed education. Can a child direct their own educations without self-responsibility, unlimited time to play and explore their own interests, unlimited access to the tools of their culture, free age mixing, participation in a supportive community, and a variety of adults committed to the rights of youth? Well, they can, just as one can chop a tomato with a dull knife. But how much better will that tomato dice come out if the person is given a clean, sharp, and appropriate tool with which to cut? The difference in the product will reflect just how much sharper the tool was. And in the same way, self-directed education has many different levels of support it can be given, which will turn out many different levels of success. When you have these six conditions in place, it's like having a brand new knife. The activity yields the most desirable product in the most pleasant way, in the most efficient amount of time. This is what you need. And this is actually what self-directed education looks like. This is what creates a child's day. When you support self-directed education in this way, self-directed education shapes itself. Now, I know this can be hard. Breaking out of molds we were forced into when we were children is not just uncomfortable, but it actually takes a rewriting of our own brains. Parents who were raised inside this manipulated model go through a brutal deprogramming when they attempt to break free of its holds and allow their own children to exercise freedom. Years and years of de-schooling must occur. They find themselves often and frequently pulled back into the doubt that freedom is innately valuable. They doubt and doubt and doubt. They do not believe this. They second guess the axiom that their children are naturally learning all the time. They see that their child is not measuring at the same rate as other children, that they have not acquired the knowledge forced children have in the same time frame, and they are filled with emotions of fear and trepidation. These feelings are normal. The work you're doing as parents to undo the programming you were deliberately put through, which would purposefully cause you to believe that a child cannot live successfully without being told what to do by another human being, without being perpetually guided into another's will, 
has taken its toll on you. It has done exactly what it was designed to do. It was designed to forcefully press out the knowledge that you and you alone are able to seek out, design, and complete the acquisition of what you will need in order to live a life as beautiful and fulfilled as you want it to be. And now, as you seek to rewrite your own brain to allow it to pursue true freedom and to allow your children to do the same, it is my deep wish to come alongside you in whatever capacity I have to aid you. I coach families in this journey. There are so many families who are seeking out freedom for their children and they are struggling. They are trying to rewrite their brains. And this rewrite is challenging. But I know it is possible. Children do learn naturally. They will direct their educations in the best possible manner. And you as a parent can help them do this, not by compelling them into the shape that seems right to you, but by providing them with the conditions necessary to optimize their own directions. So many of us who are dedicated to revolutionizing the education system are working hard to provide you with the resources you need. Peter Gray is one of my favorites. He researches and writes prolifically over at Psychology Today. He's one of those committed to self-directed families. He's one of my favorite authors, and he came together with an amazing team to create the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. This is for families to learn more and connect with other people who are dedicated to educating in freedom. So let's end with his clip, which sums up self-directed education so beautifully. I'm Peter Grave. I'm a research psychologist who studies children's natural ways of learning. My research and that of others convinces me that children come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves. They don't need imposed schooling. In fact, I've become convinced that imposed schooling as it occurs in our standard everyday schools does much more harm than good. It undermines young people's natural ways of learning. It leads them to associate learning with stress and anxiety. It promotes shallow learning for the sake of passing tests rather than deep understanding. For this reason, I've joined with others to help form the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. You can find lots of information about self-directed education on the Alliance's website, but here are the basics. I'll begin with the term education. Unfortunately, for many people, this term has been distorted by its being linked for so long and so closely with schooling. But education is not the same as schooling. A useful definition of education is this. It's the sum of everything a person learns that enables that person to live a satisfying and meaningful life. By this definition, of course, education is a wonderful thing. It's a necessary thing. It's something we all want and need. We couldn't, after all, live a satisfying and meaningful life without it. Self-directed education, then, is education that derives from the self-chosen activities and life experiences of the person becoming educated, whether or not those activities were chosen deliberately for the purpose of education. Self-directed education can include classes or lessons if they're freely chosen by the learner, but most self-directed education does not occur that way. Most of it comes from everyday life as people pursue their own interests 
and learn along the way. The motivating forces include curiosity, playfulness, sociability, and the general desire of every person to do well in life. Self-directed education necessarily leads different people along different paths, though the paths may often overlap as each person's interests and goals are in some ways unique and in some ways shared by others. Self-directed education can be contrasted to imposed schooling, which is forced upon individuals regardless of their desire for it and is motivated by systems of reward and punishment. Imposed schooling is generally aimed at enforcing conformity rather than uniqueness and it operates by suppressing rather than nurturing the natural drives of curiosity, playfulness, sociability, and self-direction. Research has shown repeatedly that self-directed education works beautifully if young people are provided with the conditions that optimize their natural abilities to educate themselves. These conditions can be provided at a fraction of the cost of our coercive state-controlled schools. They're already being provided by many homeschooling families who've adopted the approach commonly called unschooling. By resource centers and co-ops for self-directed learners and by schools that have been designed explicitly to support self-directed education. The members of the Alliance invite you to learn more about self-directed education and about the supports available for it by visiting our website at selfdirected.org. We also invite you there to join the Alliance. Together we can create a world where children are truly free to learn. Both our family and our learning community have joined together with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, and I invite you to come along and join them with us. And of course, if you would like to create your own learning community for your own family to really dive into these self-directed education practices, to build into yours and your children's lives everything we've talked about here today, please get in touch with me. Join my community of communities who are moving forward toward this goal together. There is monthly, weekly, and even daily support available. I'm holding space for families to learn how to do each of the practices we've discussed here today and talking about the details, the hows, the whys. We go into depth of all these things you need to know. We answer all your questions and we walk this journey together. I would love to meet you, to play with you, to join with you in this journey. If this resonates with you, come play with us. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to support and join this project, you can get bonuses, coaching, and all the fun stuff over at patreon.com slash emilyquant. And you can follow my journey anytime at emilyquant.com. See you next time.